0: Listening to the Utah Law Podcast, a program that explores developments in Utah law. If you find this podcast informative, please subscribe and give it a favorable review. My goal on this podcast is to help others understand the law and legal community of Utah, the Beehive State. This is the final episode of a three-part series that examines the state of abortion law in Utah in the wake of the United States Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. The first episode explored Utah's history of abortion law from the days of the old territory until the present day. The second episode looked at the Utah constitutional law arguments that Planned Parenthood raised in its argument that SB 174, Utah's law that effectively bans most elective abortions, is unconstitutional. This episode scrutinizes the state of Utah's official response. We'll look at how the state responds to Planned Parenthood and how it advocates for the constitutionality of the elective abortion ban. At the very end of this episode, I'll give my own take on the arguments that both sides presents, so stay tuned. Well, the state of Utah's primary argument in favor of SB 174 can essentially be summed up in three words, history, history, history. So the state's primary argument is that an effective ban on elective abortion is older than the state itself and the state constitution. So the state of Utah points out that Utah's first abortion ban was enacted in 1876, while we were still a territory, and that it was recodified, that is reinstated or re-extended in 1898, right after statehood and the adoption and ratification of our constitution. So, it would be odd, the state's attorneys suggest, that the Constitution would have granted a right to an abortion when it was illegal both before and after the Constitution, particularly when the Constitution itself is silent on the question of abortion. So, the state of Utah's argument from history rests upon a few bases. First, the state argues that the key provisions of the Utah Constitution that Planned Parenthood cites in favor of their argument are all essentially unchanged since the time of statehood. And these key provisions are Utah's Religious Liberty Clause, its Due Process of Law Clause, its Protection Against Unreasonable Searches and Seizures, the Uniform Operations of Law Clause, and the Equal Political Rights of Women Clause. The state says, we haven't really changed any of the language in any of these provisions. All that language was present in 1896 when abortion was already illegal and hadn't been changed again since, including after all the times our legislature continued to enact and to extend the effective abortion ban. And the state suggests that you would have expected that if the people of Utah, when they were adopting their constitution, wanted to change the law of abortion, that they would have done so explicitly. So the next basis that the state points to is that the legislature elected after the Constitution continued to extend the pre-existing abortion ban and even expanded it. Now, remember from our first episode in 1876, the abortion ban only criminalized the act of the person performing the abortion. However, in 1898, it added a criminal provision for the woman seeking an abortion. So the state points out that, It would just be ahistorical and illogical to conclude that the Constitution was intended to guarantee the right of a woman to an abortion if one of the very first laws that the new legislature passed was a criminalization of it. Third, the state notes that prosecutors and courts routinely tried and punished people for violating the criminal abortion ban from the adoption of statehood right through 1973 when the United States Supreme Court handed down Roe v. Wade. Fourth, the state points to the complete silence of abortion in the state constitutional convention, meaning that not once was this issue brought up and debated by the framers of the Constitution when they were actually drafting the document. So finally, now the state puts this all together and argues that the founding generation of Utah must not have had any thought or concern that abortion was permitted or permissible or ought to be permitted or permissible really at any point in Utah history. And so I'm going to read from a passage from the brief that really sums this up. So to rule for Planned Parenthood, the state argues that the court would have to conclude, quote, that for more than 75 years, every officer in every branch of state government openly flouted, 10 different provisions of the Constitution by passing, enforcing, and upholding abortion laws. In other words, accepting Planned Parenthood's contentions necessarily requires this court to conclude that in 1896, the general public understood at least 10 of Utah's new constitutional provisions to protect an implied right to abortion, even though abortion had been a territorial crime for the immediately preceding 20 years, close quote. To conclude that the 1896 Constitution somehow protects the right to an abortion would be to utterly remove it from the historical context for 20 years before the adoption of the Utah Constitution and more than 75 years after, and that you simply cannot read that document which was passed at that point in time as being intended to do any such thing. Okay. But why does the history matter so much if the words of the equal political rights clause guarantee women equal political and civil rights and privileges, why should it matter what the founding generation of Utah thought? Why do we care what these Victorian era citizens of Utah understood the words of the constitution that governs us today to mean? So why does the history matter? And the answer to that question, why it matters, at least in this case, is that the Utah Supreme Court, for at least two generations of justices now, has said we have to look to the history to interpret the meaning of our state constitution. So to quote from a 2019 case called Richards v. Cox, when Utah courts are interpreting the Utah constitution, they quote, seek to ascertain and give power to the meaning of the text as it was understood by the people who validly enacted it as constitutional law, close quote. In fact, our Supreme Court has recently said that this exercise of interpreting the Utah Constitution is essentially, quote, an originalist inquiry that aims to ascertain the original public meaning of the constitutional text, close quote. Now, that's from a 2019, call, 2019 case called Uh, Macy versus city of South Salt Lake. All right. So, but what does that phrase original public meaning actually mean? Well, it's basically what the voters who enacted the constitution would have understood the text of the constitution to mean. So this is key. There's a distinction. We're not asking what was the intent of the men who actually drafted the constitution at the constitutional convention although we will look at the, the debates there to maybe help us understand what the words could have meant. But the real question is what would the voting public have understood the text to mean? Because it was the voting public that enacted the constitution that ratified it and actually had the political power and authority to adopt a constitution. All right. Well, so how do you figure out what the voting people of Utah in 1896 had in mind when they enacted the Constitution. Well, the Supreme Court has said, and this time I'm quoting from a 2020 case called Salt Lake City versus Hake, that when you're trying to figure out the original public meaning, you look at the quote, text, historical evidence of the state of the law when the Constitution was drafted and Utah's particular traditions at the time of the drafting, close quote. Now you can also look to other sources of information such as the quote, shared linguistic political and legal presuppositions and understandings of the ratification era, close quote. Now I'm taking that from a a 2017 case called Nice versus Utah board of pardons and paroles. So that's a lot of kind of highfalutin terminology, text, historical evidence, particular traditions, shared linguistic political and legal presuppositions all right well let's try to see how this might work in practice and give an example that might help us understand how the court is supposed to do an originalist inquiry in the state of utah so for a good example i'm going to look to a 2006 case called american bush versus city of south salt lake now this case involved a dispute between a strip club presumably called american bush and south salt lake city which had passed an ordinance banning nude dancing the strip club sued and argued that the ordinance violating banning nude dancing violated utah's guarantee of free speech now they were suing solely under the utah state constitution not the federal constitution now the state of or the text of utah's guarantee of free speech is important here i'm going to quote the the relevant part and this comes from I believe the third section of our first article And it says that Utahns have the, quote, inherent and inalienable right to communicate freely their thoughts and opinions, being responsible for the abuse of that right, close quote. So that's the language that the Utah Supreme Court is evaluating with respect to the American Bush lawsuit. All right. So the opinion in American Bush provides an extensive canvas of free speech history in Utah, and also in the surrounding states. And it did so at the time of the the founding era of Utah, that would be 1896. And the opinion in Bush noted that, in particular, many states around the time of Utah's constitution adoption had very similar language in their own state constitutions, particularly that part about citizens, quote, being responsible for the abuse of that right, close quote. So the American Bush opinion noted that, the common law in many states prohibited obscenity, which would have essentially been any type of publicly communicated sexually explicit acts, and that this prohibition on obscenity was present in tandem with the same constitutional language that Utah has now. So from this, the court concluded that the words of the Utah Constitution enabled the state to regulate obscenity. So basically, here we're talking about the what the court would call the shared linguistic presuppositions as well as the shared legal cultural understandings. And it says, Hey, a bunch of other States had this language and they prohibited obscenity. Utahns voted for this language. It seems logical to conclude that they would have likewise intended to prohibit obscenity, or at least to have enabled the state to regulate obscenity. Now, remarkably, the, American Bush case noted that the laws in effect in 1895 both the statutory law and the common law give the clearest picture of the values and policy judgments of the people of Utah when they voted for the constitution as such an existing bar on obscenity from 1895 which had been clearly established in other jurisdictions was part of the original public meaning that Utahns had when they ratified the constitution. So drawing on American Bush, South Salt Lake could constitutionally ban nude dancing. So if we put that all together with abortion law, what the state of Utah is essentially arguing is that because abortion was illegal before our state constitution was adopted, as well as long after, and it was illegal not just in Utah, but in sister states and sister territories, that whatever the words of the various provisions of the state constitution meant, they must not have meant that a woman had an implied right to an abortion, that the voters of Utah just would not have intended to put that into the constitution, given that the surrounding legal and, and cultural milieu, if you will, of Utah, but of the other states, specifically banned abortion. So if Utahns had intended to have a right to abortion in the constitution, they would have meant to be explicit about it. That's what the state is arguing, drawing on on the example and the way we analyze case law or the meaning of the constitution from the American Bush case. So moving from the history, let's look at the state's responses to a few specific arguments that Planned Parenthood raised starting with Planned Parenthood's contention that Utah's notion and doctrine of parental rights protection extends to abortion. So as you'll recall from the second episode, Planned Parenthood cites a case called Enri-JP, where the Supreme Court said that parental rights cannot be terminated without a finding of unfitness. Now, the state essentially argues here that JP although it establishes a right not to have your parental rights severed without good cause, really can't be interpreted to support a right of abortion. Essentially, the state says the cases are too distinct. And even though the court in JP speaks at kind of a high level about these notions that family rights, parental rights, uh, the right to be part of a family are very important, they just cannot be properly interpreted to extend to the right to an abortion, which is just fundamentally different from defending against the state interfering in a pre-existing parental right and trying to sever that connection. So the state next turns to the equal political rights provision. Now, as I've mentioned before, I think that this is going to be the strongest provision uh, in favor of Planned Parenthood's argument. And recall that the equal political rights provision in its most pertinent part says that quote, both male and female citizens of the state shall enjoy equally all civil, political, and religious rights and privileges, close quote. Now here, the state of Utah argues that this provision would not have been understood as establishing a right to abortion at the time of of founding, but would have instead been thought of as guaranteeing women the right to vote to hold office, maybe to hold professional licenses, to have the same sort of uh, civic rights, like to to speak, to own property, and to engage in the community as men. In support of this claim, they cite back to the debates from the Utah Constitutional Convention, and they point out that uh, there was just no discussion about abortion at the time, and that all of the discussion regarding around the equal political rights provision during the Constitutional Convention centered on the idea of suffrage that is extending the right to vote to women and the right of women to hold political office also the state argues that because abortion was illegal at the time the constitution was adopted and immediately after the first legislature it it would it was clear that the founding era would not have interpreted the equal political rights provision of the constitution to protect abortions now interestingly The state cites to a Utah case from 1915, a Utah Supreme Court case called Salt Lake City versus Wilson. And what was interesting here is that in this case, Salt Lake City had passed a law that imposed a tax on men, but not on women. And and the, the goal of this tax was to raise funds to build roads. Men had the choice of either paying the tax or working on the roads. The Supreme Court said that this doesn't violate the equal political rights provision because the obligation of paying a special tax did not fall within the right or privilege of voting or holding office. It actually limited its interpretation just to the idea of equal suffrage or equal right of office holding, even though there was explicitly a burden on men that was not placed on women, which would seemingly violate the plain language of the provision. I don't know that Salt Lake City versus Wilson is going to be what we would call good law anymore. I think that if this were pointed out to the Supreme Court, they probably would not stick by the reasoning in this case. But it is interesting, and I think it's also emblematic of how the founding generation may have interpreted it. So 1915 is not quite 20 years following the adoption of the state constitution, and the state Supreme Court would have been composed of of men who were lawyers who would have been active in the founding generation. And they looked at it and said, no, this is about voting and office holding, not about anything else. So that's more of a data point, I would say, as opposed to what I would consider to be binding law. But moving on in the equality side, the state then moves to the uniform operation of laws clause. Now this is essentially Utah's equivalent of the Equal Protection Clause of the U.S. Constitution. Now, it's important to note that the Uniform Operation of Laws Clause was not originally intended to function that way. However, in the most recent generation of state Supreme Court opinions, it is treated more or less like an Equal Protection Clause analog. But looking at equal protection, the state makes a couple of arguments here. First, it points to an existing case from 2002 called Wood versus University of Utah medical center, which basically held that laws regulating abortion do not impermissibly distinguish between those seeking abortions and those who not, who do not. Now it's key to keep in mind that the uniform operations of laws clause is about making sure that there are no irrational classifications. So the state points to this 2002 decision and says, you guys, the state of Utah, the state Supreme Court has already held that it's not irrational to classify between those who want an abortion and those who don't. Second, the state argues that the law does not actually punish women who seek an abortion, only those who perform them. And because there is no distinction here on those who perform abortion between men and women, the state argues that the law is thus constitutional because it does not actually burden or criminalize the behavior of women as women only if they happen to be abortion providers. That's an interesting argument. We'll address that a little bit later on What I think about that argument. But more importantly, the state argues that even if the law does create a sex-based classification between men and and women, the question should be evaluated under intermediate rather than strict scrutiny. So recall from previous episodes, uh, when a law is evaluated under strict scrutiny, it is almost always held to be unconstitutional, because in when strict scrutiny applies, you have to show, if you want the law upheld, that it is narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling state interest, meaning both that what you're trying to achieve is incredibly important, almost essential to the functioning of the state, and that the way you've gone about doing it is so precise and so careful that you actually one, achieve your goal, but two, you don't cause any more deprivation or Inhibition of rights than is most necessary. But under intermediate scrutiny, which the state says is the appropriate standard, the question is not whether it's a compelling governmental interest that is narrowly tailored. It's whether there is a substantial relationship between the statutory means and what is called an important rather than a compelling government end. So what you have to show under intermediate scrutiny is that the law mostly works. And that what you're trying to achieve is quite important. So, here the state cites to a case called In Re Adoption of JS, which was a 2014 Utah State Supreme Court case. And in JS, the Supreme Court held that a law requiring unmarried fathers to execute an affidavit of paternity in order to object to the adoption of their child was constitutional. So, the law required men to execute this affidavit and if they did not execute the affidavit then the child could be adopted without their consent but the law did not require a similar filing by women so you have here pretty explicit classification between men and women in js the court said that intermediate scrutiny was the appropriate tier of scrutiny because we're talking about discrimination on the basis of sex and that intermediate scrutiny is satisfied when the differential treatment of men and women is rooted in inherent differences between the sexes and where such differences translate, not into an outright bar on one of the sexes, but as a regime preserving meaningful opportunities to both sexes. So in other words, what that means is, is that if the basis for your differential treatment between men and women is, is because of the inherent biological differences, and you still provide some opportunity for the disaffected or the, the burdened sex to overcome that bar, then intermediate scrutiny is going to be satisfied. And, the, and they held that, well, you have to subject men to this differential regime. They have to sign an affidavit that they're the father because you know the motherhood, who is the mother of the child is not in doubt. And the woman by virtue of going through birth and delivering the child, has done enough to establish a relationship, a parental relationship. But if you're just a a father who has sex with a woman and has no other touch point with her, no other touch point with the child, then, and we don't, we might not even know who the father is, then we're actually going to require you to do a little bit more to show you have a good reason to object to putting this child up for adoption. Now the state contends that SB 174 easily satisfies this burden of intermediate scrutiny, because the differential treatment of men and women under SB 174 is based on the fact that only women can be pregnant and thus be the subject of an abortion ban. So essentially what they're saying is, if you decide to call SB 174 a law that discriminates against women or that classifies and treats women differently than men, It is so because of necessity, if we're going to have any regime of protecting fetal life, it's necessarily going to have a higher effect on women, but because that is based on the inherent differences of the sexes, then it will satisfy intermediate scrutiny. And then the state goes on to argue that preserving fetal life is an important governmental interest, And that even though an abortion might not protect fetal life in all instances, because it does allow for some opt-outs, it does allow for a few exceptions, it mostly does the job. It's substantially related to the ends of protecting fetal life and thus should satisfy the question under intermediate scrutiny. Finally, uh, the state points out that questions of privacy and theories of privacy rooted in the constitutional protections against unreasonable searches and seizures just, just simply don't apply. They say that this is not a government search, but a regulation of conduct. Now the state doesn't put it in quite these terms, but you can think of it like this. Uh, if you were to say that prohibiting abortion is a search and seizure of a woman's body, it's essentially like saying that passing a law prohibiting robbery is a search or interference with the robber's body or the robber's privacy what the state is essentially saying is that a search is when law enforcement tries to get information from you, but creating a crime is not an attempt to create or to obtain information. It's simply an effort to regulate conduct, which has always been something that we've understood the state to have a right to do. Now, the state does raise arguments in response to some of the other, uh, I'm not going to call them minor arguments that have been presented in the briefing by Planned Parenthood, but uh, sections or arguments that are going to be less likely to gain traction as this constitutional debate goes forward. The key thing I think that the state argues aside from the history is that even if you have what you might call a discriminatory law, a differential law based on different treatment of men and women. The appropriate standard of scrutiny should be intermediate scrutiny, is the first thing, is the state's major argument. And that because regulation of abortion is just rooted on the fundamental biological differences between men and women, it will satisfy that tier of intermediate scrutiny. And thus, the court should ultimately hold that SB 174 is constitutional. All right. So, We've taken a close look at the arguments made by Planned Parenthood, as well as the arguments made by the state of Utah. And I guess now's the time for me to add my own thoughts and my own analysis of the arguments that have been presented. So the first thing I'm going to say is that the text and the history is really the state's strongest argument. And I find the argument from history to be very persuasive. And so if we look at the history of abortion in Utah, it really is unquestioned. There is just no doubt that abortions, elective abortions, have always been illegal whenever the question was left solely to the people of Utah. Uh, The people of Utah voted to make abortion illegal in 1876, and they continue to keep abortion illegal right up until 1973 when the issue was really forced on them by the U S Supreme court's ruling in Roe versus Wade. And if you were even to look at the interim statutes between 1973 and now 2022, the state laws were as restrictive as they could possibly be in light of the federal overlay of constitutional law. So any restriction that they could place on abortion that would pass scrutiny in federal courts, the Utah legislature passed. And so I think in that backdrop, it's going to be very hard for Planned Parenthood to say, and and remember, Planned Parenthood is not arguing that there's an explicit right to an abortion in the Constitution. They're arguing that there's an implicit, meaning unsaid, unspoken right to abortion in the Constitution. I think it's just going to be very hard for them to say that the people of Utah ever really intended to do that that the constitutional mechanisms that they put in place could realistically be interpreted in such a manner as to find a right to an abortion. So if you look at the analysis in American Bush, I think that's going to be very persuasive. Now, that was an opinion written in 2006 by then justice Jill Parrish. She is now a judge on the Utah district court, the federal district court for the district of Utah. And her opinion in American Bush was very thorough and canvassed the history and said, if we look at this constitutional language in the free speech clause of the Utah Constitution, if we hold it up against the cultural milieu, the cultural understandings of the people of Utah and the American people at large, if you hold it up against the actual practice of law in 1895, what you find is that nude dancing just simply was not lawful. And we understand or we presume that the people of Utah when they voted for this language would not have intended to undo that entire broad swath of history which had made new dancing illegal explicit explicitly especially when they, there's no language there that says that they intended to do otherwise so we would say look we're going to need strong explicit language to undo what had been the pre-existing legal and cultural practice at the time the constitution was adopted if you apply that language that reasoning from American Bush, it's just impossible to say that abortion was intended to be something that the people of Utah wanted to make legal in their constitution. Also, I think that the state of Utah's going to have a lot of traction in this argument, where if you look at the case law regarding interpretation of the Utah constitution, particularly over the past 25, 30 years, the case law really points to a strong originalist preference, originalist interpretation, meaning we're trying to understand what the people who enacted the constitution understood the words to mean which was the approach embraced by the american bush case and is also the approach embraced in really the the case law from the last 10 years or so and and three of the justices who are on the court right now have signed on to opinions really embracing that strong originalist position and those three justices are are Chief Justice Durant, Justice Pearson, Justice Peterson. And in fact, Justice uh, Durant, Chief Justice Durant, in fact, wrote a very long concurrence in, in JS in which he basically said, I, I embrace originalism as the best methodology to understand what the Utah Constitution means. And so if you take the originalist perspective, which I think this court, at least in its precedent has said it will do, I think it's going to be very hard for Planned Parenthood to overcome that. And you throw in one more hurdle, and that is where the courts of Utah have said for generations, for a century, that we just presume legislative enactments to be constitutional. We, we assume that the legislature carefully considers whether what they're passing is constitutional and that they would not pass it without them thinking it was constitutional. Now, that doesn't mean we defer to it. If they pass something that we think is unconstitutional, we will find it to be unlawful, but we presume the constitutionality of every law that's passed. So not only does Planned Parenthood have to overcome this history and this originalism, it it has to then get over a presumption of constitutionality as well. Another case that I think is relevant in analyzing the originalist approach that the Utah Supreme Court has traditionally taken is a 1993 case called Society of Separationists versus Whitehead. Now, what was going on in this case was that Salt Lake City Council had a practice of allowing prayer to be said during a portion of city council meetings, which it had set aside for opening remarks. And the practice was to invite pretty much at random, various ministers from across Salt Lake City to open the prayer. So this was a a non-sectarian, non-denominational, you know, members of the LDS church, the Calvinist, Lutherans, uh, imams, whatever were all allowed to pray. There was, there was stipulated that there was no discrimination and that if you were a religious person and wanted to pray, you would be allowed to pray during this meeting. But article one, section four, of the state constitution provides that, quote, no public money or property shall be appropriated for or applied to any religious worship exercise or instruction or for the support of any ecclesiastical establishment, close quote. Now, if you look at that language just by itself, just that plain language, it seems that a practice of allowing a city meeting to be opened with prayer would constitute the dedication of public money or property to be applied to religious worship. Now uh, an organization called the Society of Separation is sued. They asked the court to ban this practice. And in a long opinion written by uh, Justice Zimmerman, he essentially said and the court agreed that you cannot read the provision alone and in isolation. You also have to interpret it in light of Utah history. So you have to look at the text and the history together. You can't just pluck this particular section away from the constitution and say, aha, no public money, religious worship, therefore it's unconstitutional. Justice Zimmerman did a very detailed analysis of the state's history of religious liberty and practice going all the way back to essentially 1847. Actually, he went all the way back before then with uh, the persecution of the early Mormons before the emigration to Salt Lake. And he said that the through line that runs through all of the religious strife and struggle in Utah history is the struggle for religious neutrality. And he said that at the time of the Constitutional Convention, the delegates to the Constitutional Convention were worried first and foremost about ensuring the neutrality of the state of Utah between religions and that this provision of the Constitution has to be understood Not as a provision banning religious exercise in public, but as a provision requiring neutrality in religious exercise and worship. And because the city's practice was religiously neutral, it would be allowed. It was not unconstitutional. So if you look at that, originalism almost seems to me to be stronger than the text, meaning We really are going to filter what this text says through the historical practices at the time of the founding, at the time of the adoption of the language. And that's going to be the key question. So even though you have this text, which presumably says no prayer in public settings, in state settings, originalism says, no, it doesn't quite mean that it says it means neutrality so if you look at that all together i i think that the originalism side is very heavy in favor of the state of utah and the continuing validity of sb 174 however we need to look at the equality arguments between the sexes and we need to look at the two provisions the equal political rights provision and the uniform operation of laws provision now if you look at the equal rights provision I think that you can make, if you're the state of Utah, a very strong originalist case for saying, despite what the plain language might in some circumstances be interpreted to mean that you have to have perfect equality in law between men and women. If you look at the history and tradition and what the voters intended this law to mean when they voted for the constitution, this is in fact. An equal political liberty, an equal suffrage, an equal right to hold office clause. It is not a requirement that every law be on its face strictly neutral as between men and women. I think they're actually, the state is going to actually have a very strong argument. But what's interesting is the uniform operations of law clause. And this is where I contend that even though for the past 20 odd years, Our state Supreme Court has been going great guns about how we are originalists. If you look at the case law surrounding the uniform operation of law clause, it is clearly not an originalist exercise. The the case law on on, on the operation of law clause says right up front, when this was originally enacted, this was just meant to be a law requiring that the laws passed be equally applied to everyone. That if you passed a law saying everyone must wear red shoes, You don't then when you're enforcing it exempt men from the red shoe requirements or physicians from the red shoe requirements that everyone has the law equally applied against them. The the court has said that is the original understanding of what this law meant. However, in 2015, 16, 2020, we're going to say that the uniform operation of law clause is in fact, the state law analog, of the federal equal protection clause. And we're going to apply a very similar analysis to it. Now I cannot square that that is originalism. That, that is, I think, plainly not originalism. And because it's not originalism and because the state Supreme court has not embraced an originalist approach to challenges under the operations of law clause, I think that brings some space, opens up some ground for planned parenthood to make its argument that SB 174 is unconstitutional under the modern interpretation of the Uniform Operation of Law Clause. And the argument is going to be, and the best argument, I think, would be that this law, SB 174, manifestly treats women differently from men. Now, I know the state says, well, actually, the law only applies to the provision or uh, practice of providing an abortion, not to the receiving of it. And that can criminalize both men and women equally. Okay, true. But I mean, come on, let's be real. Who is this going to burden? It's going to burden women because only women can be pregnant and have children. So yes, this is clearly going to be a law that burdens women. The question then becomes, is this law one that is based solely on the inherent biological differences of men and women and gives both men and women an equal opportunity to overcome it? And so if we go back to the JS case, uh, the 2014 case, the law is essentially, it will survive intermediate scrutiny so long as it's based on the inherent differences between men and women, and it's, quote, a regime preserving meaningful opportunities to both sexes. Now, a few notes on the JS decision. Utah Supreme Court decisions tend to be unanimous, The J.S. decision was fractured. It was 3-2 in favor of constitutionality of the law requiring fathers to sign affidavits as a precondition to objecting to the adoption of their children. But two justices of the Supreme Court said, this is unconstitutional. It clearly discriminates against men and women, and it does not provide an equal opportunity for men and women, and it, it doesn't survive intermediate scrutiny it's pretty rare for there to be a fractured opinion in the Utah Supreme Court. They mostly tend to issue unanimous opinions. Now that language in JS, a regime preserving meaningful opportunities to both sexes. If I were Planned Parenthood, what I would be arguing is that how can this regime, SB 174, preserve a meaningful opportunity to women with respect to the selection and composition of their family, the avoidance of the obligations of of parenthood, the burdens of pregnancy, the health risks associated with pregnancy, it provides effectively no opportunity for women to avoid those burdens after conception. And if you look at JS, JS would have been justified under that regime because to satisfy the requirement of, of objecting to the adoption of a child, an unwed father, an unmarried father only needed to sign an affidavit. It, It was an administrative requirement. They had to fill out some paperwork. They had to meet some deadlines. They had to meet some timelines, but it was something that was realistic that they could do. What can women do to avoid a pregnancy after conception? And the answer to that question is essentially nothing. And if you look at the uniform operations of law clause in its modern application, it is essentially the equal protection clause. Now this is where we get back to federal law and federal Supreme Court constitution uh, interpretation because the U S Supreme court in Dobbs v. Jackson women's health, the case that overturned Roe v. Wade, said that abortion regimes do not violate the Equal Protection Clause. And if they did, they would satisfy intermediate scrutiny. So we might end up right back in the lap of federal jurisprudence. And the question might be decided that way. Okay, so now at the end here, the question you might be wondering is, Ben, do you think this law will be held to be constitutional or not? One more talking point here. We have currently pending a vacancy on the state Supreme Court. That vacancy will likely be filled before this case is argued. Uh, The current nominee is Judge Jill Pullman, who for the past few years has been serving as an appellate court judge. And I've argued before her. She is an excellent judge. Uh, She's very well prepared to all the cases I've ever had before her. She asks very penetrating questions and she writes very good opinions she is in every respect qualified to be a justice of the utah supreme court we have never really had to argue about a justice's view on abortion before now i do not know if her senate confirmation hearing will include that questioning whether that is going to be an issue of political dispute or partisan dispute amongst the members of the Utah state Senate. I honestly don't know, but we're going to have that topic discussed, or we probably will have that topic discussed. But the point is, is that we will have a court whose membership is substantially different from 2020 and 2021, much less 2014 when a lot of the case law that I've just been announcing to you and discussing with you was handed down. So that's all to say that you know we're in somewhat of uncharted territory. Now if I were just to apply the the precedent as it currently stands, my own view is that I think it's very hard for planned parenthood to make its case. I think the history is simply overwhelming. I think the originalism analysis is simply overwhelming and I think that the Supreme Court can look at the uniform operations of law clause and say it's rooted in the inherent differences of men versus women. It is supporting uh, an important governmental interest in fetal life. And it is, there is a substantial relationship between the two. I think what they'll probably say is that if they were to uh, uphold SB 174, the meaningful opportunity language in JS was really just applicable to that case itself, that there was a workaround given for, for men to play a part in objecting to adoptions. It's just that in the JS case, that particular man did not. That would be the way I think they would distinguish that language for what my opinion's worth. And frankly, I don't know that it's worth all that much. Well, I think regardless of your opinion of abortion law in Utah, Everyone can agree that this is the most controversial issue that our state Supreme Court will be called upon to resolve in decades, as it has been probably the most controversial issue in American politics for the past half century, and the primary fuel of the fire of our cultural dispute and culture war. I don't know whether SB 174 will be the final word on abortion in the state of Utah, or whether some new law will come along and supplant it. But I do know now that the question will rest with the people of Utah and that we're going to have to decide it. And I hope these episodes have given you some further insight into the legal side of that question. In our next episode of Utah Law Podcast, we're gonna shift gears a little bit and look at some issues that are a little less controversial, including Utah's wrongful death law. I think that's gonna be a very interesting episode, which should come out shortly. As always, if you find this production to be informative. Please subscribe. Please share it with a friend. Please give it a favorable review. I look forward to talking to you soon. Stay tuned.